We have the, par- the privilege of reading Parsha's Korach. So as is our custom, let's go through an overview of the Parsha, then we'll delve into some Sukkim that we're going to see uh, in detail inside. The uh, Parsha begins, Vayikach Korach, and these are the Sukkim we're going to analyze, that Korach took. Of course, the great question is, it goes on and never identifies what exactly Korach took, which is, we'll see what bothered Rashi and others. We'll see that in a moment. So we're familiar that the story, the really the bulk, and, and one can argue the entire Parsha, deals with this rebellion of, of Korach, Korach determines, he decides that he's uh, not satisfied with his limited role as a levy. He is uh, jealous, one can argue, but certainly he would like a greater leadership role. He'd like to displace Aaron, displace Moshe himself. Really, Aaron is the one who he challenges. And, um, and Korach doesn't just stand up for this rebellion alone, but he enlists 250 other men. And we'll talk more about who those men were in a moment. Also, when this happens, we'll see Zemachlokas, Ibn Ezra, and Ramban, that the story happened as it appears in our Chumash chronologically, or maybe it happened earlier and it's just placed here. We will uh, we'll see. So Korach rises up and challenges. Moshe hears the challenge and reacts very harshly. Then Korach speaks to all the people and he tells them, in the morning we'll find out what God wants. And Moshe instructs them. Moshe tells the Korach, rather, in the morning Hashem will, will reveal who his choice is and here's how to do it. We're going to do it through the ketoras, through the pans of the incense. Everyone should take it and we'll offer. We'll see which offering Hashem accepts. Moshe summons Dasan va'aviram, sons of Aliyah, and they say, we're not going up. It's not enough here. You see a continued articulation of the argument. Is it not enough that you brought us out? You took us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to cause us to die in the wilderness. And of course you understand the literary irony here. They are referring to a land filled with milk and honey. What land are they referring to? Egypt. Egypt. They're referring to Egypt. That's not the land filled with milk and honey. That's not the land that's promised to be filled with milk and honey. But you see the distortion. When a rebellion arises, when a person sets their mind to, to um, negative overload, then their judgment is impaired. Their interpretation, their analysis is impaired. Their memory is impaired. So Dustin Avir Amir have a totally warped, distorted sense that promise of Eretz of Aschalavadvash, they're applying to, to uh, Egypt. You didn't even bring us to a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? We're just in no man's land. You took us out of a land milk filled with milk and honey, and you've not brought us to such a land. Did so they. Did have it in the previous Parsha also? They use exactly the same word? This is a common theme. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Moshe gets very distressed, Moshe gets very upset. And uh, tells Korach, you and your entire assembly, come before Hashem, machar. You, your your uh, accomplices, and Aaron. On page 824 now in the art scroll. Let everyone take their fire pan, place incense on them, bring them to Hashem, and so on. They each took their fire pan, and, uh, and God then responds. Hashem spoke to Moshe, separate yourself from them. Right, Hashem tells them, He Separate yourself, and I'm going to swallow them up. And indeed, that's what happens. Because creates an incredible miracle, the ground opens, and the ground swallows them up. I may speak about it on Shabbos, but you know, this phenomenon that we thought was unimaginable sinkholes. I never heard about it until a year or two ago. In Florida, there's been this phenomenon of the ground all of a sudden just opening up. There was a man who was sleeping in his bed who disappeared. His family heard a yell. They went into his room. He was gone. The ground under his bed opened up. The bed fell. That's it. Never heard from him again. 
This Never. One just opened this morning. Really? Another one just happened? Yeah, Parshas Korach. Okay. These sinkholes. So, and by the way, this is consistent. You know, there's a big discussion between the Rambam and the Ramban. Miracles. The whole nature of miracles. And the position of the Rambam in particular is that every miracle needs to be able to be explained naturally. Because the most important ingredient in life to make life meaningful is free will. It's Bechir Chavshis. And the moment that we have miracles, which are the overt, explicit um, reversal of nature or God transcending nature or nature, the rules of nature being suspended, then our Bechir HaChavshas, our very free will is suspended. Because if you see God's open hand, if you see God in front of you explicitly through miracles, then there's no room to deny. And if there's no room to deny, there's no choice to be made. So in order to be able to make choices to preserve Bechir HaChavshas, God must remain hidden. For God must be hidden, it means that even miracles, why do we call them miracles? Why does the Torah describe them as miracles? Why in our davening do we describe them as miracles? Because they are miracles. In other words, the odds, the chances of their happening naturally are infinitesimally small. They're tiny. But they have to still be there. They have to be enough for the skeptic to point to that possibility and say, there's no absolute proof of God. To preserve our free will, there has to remain at least the possibility. So you see, you read the Torah and you say, come on, God performed a miracle, the ground opened up, swallowed people up, what is this, a fairy tale, I never heard such a thing. You see, there are natural phenomena. There was an article in the New York Times in the 1980s, you could Google it, that showed that if the, the moon, the rotation of the earth, if everything was aligned the correct way, it's possible for the sea to split. It'd be possible for the sea to split because of the winds, people to walk across it with dry land. Every miracle has to be able to be explained. Maybe not a likelihood of this explanation, maybe not even a 50-50 chance of this explanation, but at least the possibility of this explanation. So we live in a time of sinkholes. Rahmat al-Islam, terrible tragedy and a danger. I'm not saying we should walk around paralyzed with fear, but it's scary. Ground could open someone up. Ground could open up and swallow somebody up. So you see that this miracle God did, that the ground opened up and swallowed Korach and his followers, was can be explained at least in, in natural means. So what happens next? And here's something that's phenomenal. Here's something that's fantastic. What happens next? Hashem spoke to Moshe and he said, Tell Elazar ben Aaron Akoin, pick up the fire pans from the fire, throw away the flame, they have become holy. And Moshe intervenes yet again, and here we have one final proof, a new proof of Aaron's greatness. And this is the most famous proof, the staffs. Everybody takes a staff, I'm on page 830 now in the art scroll, Everybody takes a, um, a mateh. And, um, by the way, what's the difference between a mateh and a shevet? Very interesting. I think we've discussed that in the past also. Mateh and shevet both mean staff, but they have different connotations. And both words mean staff, and both words mean tribe. Not coincidentally. Mateh and a shevet both mean a community, a congregation, a tribe. And they also can mean different words for a staff. But that's for another time. So Moshe instructs them to take it, to place it, and whichever one Hashem will allow to blossom, whichever flowers will grow forth from, that will be Hashem's real choice. Of course, it is Aaron Vayotzei Perach Vayotzei Tzitz Gedim. Aaron's staff um, is the one that uh, is the one that blossomed, and that indeed was was Hashem's choice. Which leads to the question I spoke about this last year in Adrasha. It's not my question; it's a question of Rabbi Herschel Schachter. Zichron Levracha, who I spoke about a couple weeks ago in Shur, by J.J. Shachter's father, who passed away, one of the chaplains who liberated Buchenwald. We told the amazing story of his Pesach Sheni Seder that he led there. So he asks, and I heard this from Rabbi J.J. Shachter, a number of miracles have been performed 
God has uh, the, the fire pans. The ground has opened up and swallowed them up. They're gone. Why is there yet one more test? Isn't it enough? Isn't it a little overkill? Isn't it a little bit rubbing their faces in it, pouring salt in their wounds? Enough already! Why this final test with the staffs where God is going to choose for one to blossom forth with flowers? Why? So, I, uh, his answer is that we should not distinguish ourselves by pushing down others. We don't want to become distinguished and chosen because others fall and we're taller than them. We want to be distinguished and chosen because we've blossomed. So until now the tests and until now the ground open up and swallowing up Korach is kind of a negative, it's a negative um, endorsement of the Almighty. It's destructive. The ground has swallowed Korach and his followers. But now with the blossoming of the staffs, it's, it's a positive endorsement of Aaron and that's the ultimate way we want to be chosen. We want to be distinguished, our leaders should be distinguished, not by stepping on others, not by pushing down others, not by character assassinations of others, but ultimately our leaders should be distinguished and chosen for their blossoming forth and because they are, they are, uh, indeed, they are indeed worthy. So uh, I think that was a very important message and it's apropos, Mali, what, what I said last Shabbos about uh, the Maraglam, that in our Parsha it says, or Isa Misa'aretz, that in our Parsha, it says that the Maraglim were sent to investigate the land. Are they many? Are they few? Are they strong? Are they weak? Is the land good? But in Dvarim, in the first parak in Sefer Dvarim, when Moshe is soliloquy repeating to the Jewish people, it doesn't say. What does it say? What's the reason? It says, it says you should bring us back Davar. What's the exact language? When Moshe is recalling exactly what happened when the spies were sent, here it is. Bring us back a davar. So Moshe remembers it differently, that the purpose was to go find out a davar. What's a davar? So we pointed out, Rashi says, davar is What language are they speaking? What language are they speaking? What do you mean, what language are they speaking? Ask the Maral, who cares what language they're speaking? How, how strong, how mighty, what are their military strongholds? What kind of military capacity do they have? How difficult will it be to conquer the world, the land? How many in their army? That's what matters, the census of the people. What language they're speaking? And we quoted the Maharal who says here in his Gorarya in this Pasuk, Maharal explains, yeah, it means everything. What a person chooses to speak about says everything about them. Says everything about them. We speak negatively, positively. Do we speak about, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt, that great people speak about ideas, average people talk about things, small people talk about people. So the Miraglim were spent to, sent to find out, are they great, are they average, or are they small? Are they talking about ideas, are they talking about things, or are they talking about people? Ishlafi mahalalo, the Pasuk in Mishlei, we quoted Rabbeinu Yonah. You learn about a person by what they praise. So the warning not to speak Lashon Hara, prohibition of gossiping, of knocking other people down, is not so much to protect the victim of the gossip, although that's also critically important, but it's to protect ourselves, our integrity, our character, who we are, because it says everything about us, what we speak about. We sit around the Shabbos table talking negatively about the rabbi, about the shul, about the schools, about the community, about the, uh, whatever the case may be, it says everything about us, not about whom we're speaking about. So, the miraculum were sent, and, uh, and the purpose was Vyashivu Osanu Davar. 
Find out what davar, what medabrim, find out what they're talking about, because we'll learn everything about them. So here too, um, the idea, this is a consistent theme in the Torah, is not to knock people down, but to build ourselves up. Not to emerge victorious by the absence of the other, but to emerge because of our own worthiness and because of our own blossoming, and perhaps that's why that was the final, that's why that was the final test. The fear remains... They were very afraid. What was that fear? Behold, we perish, we're lost, we're all lost. Everyone who approaches the tabernacle will die. Is that, well, where was that fear? Where did it come from? Well, it came from the fact that they're worried. They just saw Korach tried to rebel because he said, I'm from the tribe of Levi. So now they're fearful. Is it that the closer you are to Hashem, the more vulnerable and susceptible you are to death? First we saw Nadavaviu, they bring a fire, and they die, seemingly prematurely, tragically, on the day of the Hakamas HaMishkan, the day of the inauguration of the tabernacle. Now we have Korach. He ostensibly seeks to come close to Hashem. He wants to be a leader. He wants to be a levy. He wants to be displaced Aaron. And what's the result for him? He dies. So the people are fearful. Is this what happens? Everyone who approaches close to Hashem is going to die? Will we ever stop perishing? This is not exactly an incentive for religious growth. Whoever seeks to get close to Hashem is going to drop dead. The ground's going to swallow them up. What happens? So how does the Torah respond? By reaffirming Aaron's position. That's Perak Yirches, the next section. Aaron's duty reinstated. Hashem, what happens in the next parak? You and your sons and your father's household will bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. And remember, You're going to serve. You are the tribe of Levi. You are to serve. Then the Torah tells us about the gifts, truma, the gifts that we give to the Kohanim. That's how they are sustained. And what are those gifts? The Torah enumerates them here. In the end of Perak Yitches, they are of the Korbanos, the Kohanim meat from the Korbanos. And we have um, the Bechor, the firstborn, is given to the Kohen, not to eat, not the child, the animal, and uh, so on. And then we have the Meiser, that which is given to the Levi. The uh, beginning of Shvi, page 834. Again, part of the affirmation of Levi and their role is how Levi are sustained. Levi are not given a place in uh, inheriting the land of Israel. The other tribes inherit a portion. Levi does not get a portion. Where are today to live and how are they to sustain themselves? They're given cities among the other portions and they are sustained through the people. They are the ultimate community kolal. Every community has a kolal of Leviim who learn and teach. How do they make a living? They're given, it was an agricultural system, and they're given a tithe. They're given the produce. They're given meiser, a tenth of the produce that the farmers that the farmers bring in. And that's how the tribe of Levi is sustained. Why is this here? This really should be in Sefer Vayikra, the book of Kohanim and Levium of Karbanos. It's here again because in the aftermath of the Korach episode, which Korach was from the tribe of Levi, and the people's fear, the holier you are, the more susceptible, more vulnerable, the more likely you're going to drop dead, Torah reaffirms the status of Levi and our commitment to support them. The Rambam writes at the end of Hilchah Shemitah that anyone can be tra- part of the tribe of Levi. 
There is a genealogical tribe of Levi. If you descend from Levi, then you also inherit that role and the entitlement to that support. But you can volunteer to be tribe of Levi, says the Rambam. If you want to sit and learn Torah all day, if you want to play the role of teaching Torah in the community, then the community sustains you and you have the status of Levi. The origin of the community kolo. Did the Rambam mean this literally? Put it at the end of Hilcha Shemitah V'yovel. So maybe it's an unusual placement. We discussed this at length when we did our three-part series of sharing the burden, drafting yeshiva students to the army. One of the arguments that yeshiva students should be exempt is they have the status of Levi. And we saw Rav Aron approach, and we saw Rav Avinir's approach, and we saw, um, we saw many, many approaches. And they argued that either the Rambam meant that homiletically, he didn't mean it literally, halachically, you see it's placed at the end of Hilchah Shemitah V'yovel, that's not the correct, if it was a halachic conclusion, we saw the argument of Aaron Lechnestein, today there's 61,000 students taking advantage of the exemption, so did the Rambam mean you could have 61,000 people volunteering to be tribe of Levi, or did he mean the Yechidei Skula, there are 100, there are 50, there are 500, but there are exceptional individuals whose levels of learning are so distinguished that they have the academic Support, so to say, of the of the community, but all of that stems that conversation from this section, from the end of our parsha, after the episode with Korach, the Torah of reaffirming the status of the tribe of Levi, and that is how the parsha indeed ends. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of the parsha and uh, look at some of the psukim a little bit more in depth. It's on page 820 in the Art Scroll. In the beginning of Parshas Korach, in the Mikros Gedolos Perak Tezai, in the very beginning. Vayikach Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kas ben Levi, v'dasan v'aviram b'nei Eliyav, v'on ben Pelas b'nei Ru'uvein. So what happens? Korach, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi, and Dasan v'aviram, who are the sons of Eliyav, and On, the son of Pelas b'nei Ru'uvein. So this is a non-sequitur. Vayikach. Korach took, Vayikach Korach, Korach took, and we give his lineage. And Vidas, we never came back to saying what he took. Look at the next pasuk. Viyakum alufnei Moshe v'anashim b'nei Yisrael chamishim v'masayim. They, they, in other words, those delineated in the previous pasuk. Korach dasan va'aviram and own took. Avayakum stood up in front of Moshe v'anashim b'nei Yisrael chamishim v'masayim. Two hundred and fifty of them. Nisiyei eida kriei moed anshe shem. And who were they? They were leaders of the assembly, summoned for meeting, men of renown. These were not just average Jews. So what does it mean, Vayikach Korach? How do we understand this non-sequitur? Rashi famously says, Vayikach, Lakach es atzmo l'tzad acher, Lios nechlach mitocha eidah. Korach literally took himself out of the equation. What did Korach take? Vayikach Korach, what did he take? He took himself. Where did he take himself? Out of the equation. Meaning, he was on the other side of the people. To complain about the status of the Kohanim. What does peleg mean? To split. He created a split, a division, a divide, a splintering in the Jewish people. And that is a terrible tragedy. Machlokas, as we know, is undermining... Is, uh, is one of the biggest plagues we face. He separated himself from the rest of the community to establish lahachzik, to, to hold on to machlokas. We see this elsewhere. 
ויקח קורח, משך ראשי סנהדריוס, ושבהם בדברים, כמו שנאמר ככה, זרם כחוי מלכם דברים, he tried to recruit distinguished leaders to join him. ויקח, what did he take? He took people, vulnerable people, people whom he convinced, who he argued, who he recruited to be part of a fight, and successfully recruited them to their own detriment. Says the Balaturim, Why is this here? The end of last week's Parsha ended with the story of Tzitzis. And we spoke, I think we spoke last week, didn't we? The end of the Parsha, the beginning of the Parsha, the connection between Tzitzis and the Meraglim. The end of the Parsha says, Beginning of the Parsha has the same Lashon. They were sent, Lasurah Sa'aretz. And the, uh, the connection. But why sits us the end of the parsha? And we begin here with Korach. Says the Balaturim, you know why? Shal inyan sits chilik al Moshe. Because the Medrash says, what was Korach? What was the source of his rebellion? He argued about sits. Rashi tells us that story. What does it mean he argued about sits? The cloak is gone. Yeah. Yeah, where is this Rashi? Where is this Rashi? Um, ba, 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 ba. Here. Here it is. I'm sorry. Vidasan Vaviram. Rashi says, Vidasan Vaviram. He recruited them. Now, here's a very interesting fact. The Shevet of Dasan of Ruvain lived next to, was stationed in the camp, and they're traveling, and even when they were encamped. Where was Reuven? Next to Kahas. Not from the same tribe. Reuven was dead. Next to Levi. To the south. They were on the south side of the Mishkan. I don't know if that was a bad neighborhood, the south side of the Mishkan. But they were on the south side of the Mishkan. Here's incredible. Dasan Vaviram. Are they Leviim? Are they part of the tribe of Levi? No. They're part of what tribe? They're a tribe of Reuven. And yet, they're, just, they're listed, they're delineated as among the leaders of the rebellion. The 250 who die... Correct. But the 250 who die, most of them are not from Levi. Most of them are from Ruvain. How did they get stuck? How did they get stuck here? You know how? Because of where they were stationed, bad neighbors... They were influenced by their neighbors. And therefore we conclude from here, the Gemara, the Medrash say, Oy l'rasha, oy l'shechina. Woe unto the wicked person, and woe unto his neighbors. You see that Ruvain, most of the dead, most of the damage, most of the deceased came from Ruvain. Not even from Levi. Why? Because the tribe was influenced. Ask Sir Venevensal, Shlita, chief rabbi of the old city. I don't understand. Who told people where to camp? Who made the seating assignments on the bus? It was divinely ordained where everyone lived. If you're Ruvain, you have a pretty legitimate grievance. You come to the Almighty and you say, God, you told me to live next to this tribe. You told me to live next to this family, Kahas. And what was the result? The result was, I lost so many members of my family. They were recruited to this horrible rebellion and died. God, what, what, what were you doing? So Rav Nevensal says, you see, the notion of the influence of neighbors is so great that even when it's divinely ordained that we be exposed to or connected to others, we can never let down our guard. Says Rav Nevensal, you know, sometimes you think, 
Hashem put me in this job. Hashem put me in this house. Hashem put me in this community. Sometimes you feel like Hashem put my kids in this school. Hashem put me in this position. It feels almost like it comes from above. It's divinely ordained. It's supernatural. It says from Nevensal, but that doesn't give us the license to let down our guard. Hashem put you in the house? That's nice. You still have to be careful of the neighbors. Hashem put your kids in that school? Good. Make sure they still have the right friends. Hashem put you in that job? That's nice. Make sure you're hanging out with the right people at the water cooler. Says Rav Nevensal, you see from here that even when Hashem puts us in our position in life, we can never let down our guard. Such is the influence and the power and the potency of neighbors. In fact, the Mishnah in Pirkei says, what does it say? Harcheik mishachen ra and al tischaber l'rasha. It says, don't connect with a wicked person and distance yourself from a bad neighbor. Well, I don't understand. It should say, distance yourself from a, a Russia, a wicked person. And don't connect yourself to a bad neighbor. Why does it say the opposite? I forgot who I saw this from. That, because who is more dangerous? Who's more threatening? A bad neighbor or a wicked person? A bad neighbor. See, a bad neighbor is not necessarily a bad person. It could be a good person who has bad habits. A wicked person it's unlikely we'll attach ourselves to. Don't attach yourself to a Russia. It's unlikely that you're going to become close to the Russia. The wicked person is clearly wicked. You're not going to want to be connected to them. Right? My mother with my parents were at the Israeli Day Parade on Sunday. Of course, there was the Nature Karta float with signs talking about you know, protesting. And uh, my mother, God bless her, couldn't help herself from getting into a uh, uh, discussion. And she said to them, what are you doing? You're, damaged, you're, you're threatening the well-being of my grandchildren. My grandchildren who live in Israel, by your connection with Ahmadinejad and support of Iran and disgusting attitude towards Israel, you are hurting, you're, 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 you're threatening the well-being of my grandchildren. You know what they said there? Good, they shouldn't be there anyway. This is sick people. Mm-hmm. So does my mother have to be told, don't go out for dinner, don't have coffee with the Naturi Karta? Or Russia, you don't have to be told, don't connect with. But a neighbor... You have to distance yourself because we're so much more vulnerable to a bad neighbor because a bad neighbor is not necessarily a bad person. There could be a good person with bad habits. So where do you learn all of this from? Our Pasuk. Dos and Va'aviram, they were from Ruvain. And yet, Back to Rashi. Why did Korach disagree with Moshe? And it's kind of Nisiyoso, Shalom Tzafan Ben Uziel. Moshe had appointed Ali Tafan to be the Nasi of Bnei Kahas. My father had four brothers. So the oldest brother Amram, his two sons, took greatness. Who were his two sons? Moshe and Aaron. One is like the king, namely Moshe, and the other took on the status of the Kohen Gadol, Aaron. Who should come next? Shouldn't it be me? Okay, Amram's the oldest. They took the top positions. Good. But who's the brother after Amram? The next brother is Yitzar. And says, Korach, I'm his son. So I should get the next appointment. Instead, Moshe skipped to the younger, youngest brother and their and nephew bless you he stood up and gathered 250 
of the wisest people. Ruban Meshev and Ruven Shechenov. And where did most of them come from, as we said a moment ago? The neighbor Ruven. And what did they, they were assembled, bless you, and what did he put on them? He put on them taluses that were all entirely woven out of tchelas. Mm. In other words, they weren't white, and the strings on the corners weren't white. Everything about the talus was the color turquoise, was tchelas. They came before Moshe. And they said, Rebbe, we have a question. The talus that we're wearing, nothing on the corners, but the beged, the garment, is all turquoise. Is it obligated in tzitzis on the corners or not? So what did Moshe respond? It's obligated. They started laughing at him. Started laughing. He said, I don't understand. If you're wearing a garment... One strand of turquoise exempts the whole garment or fulfills the mitzvah. So now that the garment is entirely turquoise, it should be obligated at all. And Rashi doesn't quote the second second example they give is they filled a room with Sifrei Torah. And they said, Moshe, does the room need a mezuzah? And what did he answer? Yes. Of course it needs a mezuzah. He said, that's ridiculous. If a mezuzah which has how many partials in it? One exempts the entire room. So if I have a room filled with Torah that has every parsha, why would I need a mezuzah? And they laughed at Moshe. What kind of argument is this? I don't want to spend time at length. We did in the past. If you go on Why You Torah on our website, BRS Online, you can listen. We developed in the past, uh, I think two years ago, Rabbi Soloveitchik's interpretation, which was the question of centralized authority versus personal autonomy. A tremendous uh, debate in Western culture today where everyone wants to feel personal autonomy. Korach wasn't expressing anything different than what every American and Westerner wants. Don't tell me what to do, what to like, how to act, how to behave. I'm the arbiter of my own destiny. I choose. We want personal autonomy, not centralized authority. And yet the Torah requires a certain sense of community. And to have community, there has to be a centralization of Torah, of halacha, of jurisprudence, of of worship, of ritual, of ceremony, of practice. And there's this tension that exists. Even within Yadus, where we have individuality, we have 12 different tribes, 12 different entrances to the Beis Mikdash. We have individuality, we have seven minyanim in Boker Synagogue. And yet there's a centralized, a central system that binds us, called Halacha, called community, called Eretz Yisrael, called, called Minag, called Jewish calendar. So there's this tension. And ultimately the Rav says that's what Korach was arguing. The decentralization of authority. Moshe, you're not holier than me. Kulanu Kedoshim. We're all holy. We're all equally the image of God. Each one of us can arrive at, at what we think is right. But what was his classic mistake, said the Rav? The Rav coined the expression, it was the common sense rebellion. You see, if you ask, if my entire garment is turquoise, do I need tzitzis? If the entire room is filled with Torahs, do I need a mezuzah? It's a ridiculous question. Because it's the common sense rebellion. Korach was saying, my common sense dictates that it shouldn't need tzitzis, it shouldn't need a mezuzah. What's the answer? Imagine if I told a physicist, my common sense dictates that if I release an item mid-air, it should remain there. My common sense says, gravity is stupid, it's ridiculous. Why should it drop? If I'm holding it there and I let go of it there, it should remain there. What would the... What would the uh, scientist say to me? 
they'd laugh. It's, a, it's not worthy having a conversation with you. Go study physics. Start with biology and chemistry. Get to physics. And then we can talk. And when you understand the natural order, when you understand the laws of science, then we can talk. Korach's mistake was seeing, and this is a mistake, the Rabbi Salavitchik developed this at length, this is a mistake that many Jews follow in today. You understand halacha from within. It's a vibrant, dynamic, rich system, body of knowledge. You can't just say, ex halacha? That makes no sense to me. That's stupid. That doesn't make sense. That's outdated. That's archaic. That's, that's done. That's old. You have to learn, learn the sugya. You have to be within the system. You have to understand the framework of halacha and understand the dynamism and understand the tensions within halacha and the development of halacha. See, see halacha, see Torah as a rich, dynamic, vibrant body of knowledge. Not as something that's common sense. Oh, my common sense dictates that that should be okay on Shabbos. My common sense dictates kolisha is stupid. My common sense dictates people who argue as such are embracing the Korach common sense rebellion. Learn the sugya, understand the issues, understand it within the framework of halacha. Korach was arguing from common sense. That's what Rashi means to tell us, and the Medrash is telling us about the talus and the tchelas and the mezuzahs and the sifrei Torah. But this was not a question of, of common sense. Where so now, did they get the sifrei Torah? That's a good question. Where did they get sifrei Torah? So maybe it doesn't mean entire, complete sifrei Torah because the entire sifrei Torah wasn't written because they hadn't yet lived. It, may, it, means, it means scrolls of the Torah. Scrolls that had already been written. So back to the Baaturim. So Baaturim says, why is Korach positioned here? The end of last week's parasha was Tzitzis. The beginning of this week's parasha is Korach. What's the connection between the two? Because that was one of Korach's arguments. It was about Tzitzis. And that's why they're back to back. Right, so you could view Vayikha Korach is... Is, what did he take? He took issue with Moshe. Yeah, you could see it that way. The Rashbam, Shmuel ben Meir, Rashi's grandson, gives a different interpretation. Vayikach Korach, kama vayikach Avram esari ishtov es lo. Afkan vayikach Korach vodasa vavir manashim harbei, at shekamu imam lefnei Moshe and chamishim umasayim. Avram makes a statement when he takes Sarah and lo. It's an ideological statement. So similarly here, Korach is making a statement. I guess this is what you were describing, Barbara. Vayikach, he took issue. What did he take? He took issue. He took himself out of the equation. He took conflict. These different ways of understanding it. And what does he do? Right, he separated himself. That was his classic error. Yeah, the Kliyakar spells them out, by the way. Look at the Kliyakar. This Kicha, this taking, this non sequitur of the Torah, which never really says what he took, has many interpretations. Yan Kiloporashim Kicha Zubiyadayim. Does it mean he took literally physically something with his hands? Oh, bedvarim with words. Kumakachas alavim means to summon, to call. The Yishom Shekol Sipur Nimshachad Bnei Ruven Shalokach Lo Lemachlukusos Bnei Ruven Hirala Lakid Lav Kol Mari Nefesh V'Yada Kinafshem Mar Al Bachora Shenilkach Hamiru Uven. The Alpha Bishy Yaakov Not Lav Lamosha Mikol Makom Aydesh Tachzor Kosror Lo Baalea Yachshu B'Shigam Lehem Tachzor Bachora V'Yaskimu Him Korach. This is an incredible insight by the Kliyakar. Who did Korach go after? Vayikach. He took, he took into his party, he took, he recruited into his cause. And he did, who did he go after to recruit into his cause? Mm-hmm. Mare Nefesh. Well, first of all, we saw, okay, Rashi, Rav Nevensal, the neighbor. Who is the easiest to get? Your neighbor. You share a 
you know, flour with them, you break bread with them, you drink wine with your neighbor, you know your neighbor, you babysit your neighbor, you borrow something from your neighbor. So your neighbor, there's that, the guard is down because there's that nation, that, that casual relationship to your neighbor. But here the Kliyakar says something more. Why did he go after Ruvain? Because Ruvain were Mare Nefesh. Ruvain were bitter and resentful. Why was Ruvain bitter and resentful? And what did Ruvain feel that would identify with the argument of Korach? Says the Kliyakar, who was supposed to be the Bechor? Who was supposed to have the holy distinguished status of the Jewish people? Ruvain. Who took it away? It was Yaakov, not Moshe. But so what? Here Korach says, it should have been me. My father's older than Elisaphan's father. It should have been me. My father was the second eldest. And he comes to Reuven and he says, Hey Reuven, remember you went through that? You were supposed to be the Bechor and it was taken away from you? Reuven says, Yeah, you know what? I'm sick of this. That's right. I'm going to join with you. What's with this displacement? What's with taking away the, the right of leadership? So that's what the Kliyakar says. That's Vayikach Korach. What did he take? Dasan Va'aviram B'nei Reuven. He went to his neighbor, he went into his tent, and he started a conversation. And he took away, he, he took advantage. Vayikach, what did he take? He took advantage of their bitterness. He took advantage of their status. Komari Nefesh. Yada he knew, kinafsha mara ala bachora. He knew they were embittered over the loss of the firstborn status, that was taken from the tribe of Reuven. That's the first interpretation of the Kliyakar. Then, Then the second interpretation is, what did he take? He took the Taina. He says, that's the Vav. What did he take? He took all of them, wrapped together with his Taina, with his grievance, and he came to complain. Okay. And then the Kliyakar explains further, but we'll stop here. Okay. Why did it not continue the lineage? Go back to Rashi. It says, Ben Yitzar, Ben Kahas, Ben Levi. Korach is the son of Yitzar, who's the second son of Kahas, who's the son of Levi. Who's Levi's father? Yaakov. Yaakov. It says, Rashi, It doesn't mention Yaakov. Why? Because Yaakov had prayed, had davened, he anticipated this would emerge, and he davened, I don't want to be associated with Machlokas. Shnemar v'kalam al tatei kvodi. Beheicha nizkar shmo al-Korach, v'yisyachsam al-Duchem b'divrei ayyamim. Shnemar, ben Avyasaf, ben Korach, ben Yitzhar, ben Kas, ben Levi, ben Yisrael. Finally, at the end of divrei ayyamim, the final book of the Torah, of Zanach, when it mentions the lineage, the book is mostly a family tree, lineage, then it mentions it, it mentions it there. It's a very important lesson here also. Yaakov, who was no longer even alive, certainly couldn't be held responsible or accountable for this machlokas. But to such a degree, he did not want to be associated with machlokas. You guys want to fight? You're speaking negatively, critically? The shul, the school, the political parties, the neighbor, the homeowners association, the, you're off machlokas? 
I'm far away. I don't want my name attached to Machlokas. Don't list me. Don't tell me. Don't email me. Don't BCC me. I don't want to be attached to Machlokas. So poisonous, so toxic, so cancerous is Machlokas. The Yaakov Avinu died. Davened, rather. The Yaakov Avinu Rachamim. He davened. Don't attach me. Don't identify or associate with me with Machlokas. And that's what the Kliyakar continues. See, Korach was, this is how Korach bribed Ruvain. He went to Ruvain and he said, I don't even want to be known to be the offspring of Yaakov. What Yaakov did to you by taking away the Bechor, because it was Yaakov who withdrew the firstborn status from Reuven. So, part of, says the Kliyakar, part of the methodology of Korach, when he went to his neighbors, Reuven, Dasan Vaviram, and he said, isn't it terrible what's going on? It's horrible, I want you to know. I'm so upset at what my great-grandfather did to you, to your grandfather, by withdrawing his status, skipping over him. I don't even want to be identified with him. On my ID card it says, Ben Yitzar, Ben Kahas, Ben Levi. Hard stop. I don't even want to be identified. So Torah says, oh, yeah, you don't want to be identified? No problem. Therefore the Torah does not list him. Chazal interpret another Vayikach Korach. What is a Korcha? A bald spot. He made a bald spot in the world. Ben Yitzar Sheh is called Olam Ketzarayim. Ben Levi Shanasa Leviyak the Gehenim. Velachshov Nami Ben Yaakov Sheh Ikev Atzma Legehenim. Yaakov Bikeh Shrachem Matzma Sheh Yaakov Bimam Shenemar. Besodam Atavon Avshi Bekalam Atachik Kvodi. Vipshut and Vade Lo Lachavad Yialoim Yachesh Avimayim. Kiaidei Ze Yidrash Shmolegnai. Velakain Bikeh Shelo Yachid Kvodo Shama. Yaakov knew that it would not reflect well on him to be associated and that's why he davened to be omitted not to be included in this yet uh, I haven't it's not easy for me to understand this it's not first time I hear it so should take off well if you take off it sounds like Yaakov Avinu knowing that everything is blue off the coach everything is done by Hashem they did not have their son of all this this is not just so this is a general this is a general question a generation who saw the splitting of the sea and the ten plagues, who stood at Harsinai and Hashem revealed Himself, who lived through miracle after miracle, the man, the air, the Anani Akavod, it's enough already. Clearly there's a divine plan. Kosh Baruch chose Aaron, chose Moshe. Step aside. It's clear. What's the abstinence? What's the, what's the stubbornness? So yeah, first of all, there's a lot to be said on this, but thus is the power of, of Bechir Chavshas, of free will. That is the strength of free will. The ability to deny. The ability to deny and to act in a self-destructive. It's also the power of the ego when the ego gets in the way. Okay. We don't, I don't want to take the time now, but you can look back. I referenced earlier the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban of this long discussion. We'll just look at the beginning of the Ibn Ezra for a moment. The Ibn Ezra says this whole episode of Korach happened long before. Before the Maraglim and before much of Sefer Bamidbar, May Mariva, it happened... It happened much earlier, says the Ibn Ezra. It happened after the inauguration of the Mishkan when the Leviim were given the status instead of the Bechorim. The Bechorim should have been the ones to conduct the service of the Mishkan. And the Leviim were um, 
given that task instead, and it's right after that episode. What happened? Those who were watching thought, who is the one who decided this? I guess this answers your question a little bit then. This was not divinely ordained. It was Moshe. Moshe, you're human. You favor your brother. This was... Um, Nepotism at its finest. Protexia. The ultimate nepotism, protexia. You're taking care of your own. And all the Levium thought, okay, good, we're going to get cabinet positions. We're going to get positions of distinction. So what happens? The Bechorahs rebelled. All the Bechorahs. So the Ibn Ezra posits, you know, Korach was the Bechor of his family. Dasan Vaviram was the Bechor of their family. Says the Ibn Ezra, all 250 of those who rebelled were all the firstborn of their family. This was the rebellion of the firstborn. When they see, in practice, they're not going to get to do the service, they're not going to be the ones who have the positions of, this, of distinction, it was taken from them and given to Levi. Even though Korach's a Levi, his status of Bechor is more overriding, and he gathers all these firstborn. And it becomes a conglomerate, a team of firstborn. And they are the ones who rebel. So Ibn Ezra says, when did all this happen? Not after the Miraglim. This happened early on. Right when they were inaugurating the Mishkan. And they saw the Levim in practice. That's when they rebelled. Saying, what do you mean? We're the Bechor. It should have been us. The Ramban disagrees. <clears throat> and the Ramban says, yes, normally ain't muktam ma'ukhar b'Torah. True, there are times that the Torah is taken out of chronological order. But this is not one of them. Says the Ramban, this happened exactly where it appears, appears, namely here. The Ramban says this in a paragraph that begins, He quotes the whole Ibn Ezra. This happened exactly where it is, after the episode of Kadesh Barnea, after the Maisa Maraglim, says the Ramban, it happened right here. So you have this machlokas between Ibn Ezra and the Ramban. Okay, a few more points. Look at another Ibn Ezra, Pasuk Beis. We got very far today, we did two psukim. They stood up in front of Moshe, men from the Bnei Israel, 250 of them, men of distinction, Nesiei Eida. Says the Ibn Ezra, Lifnei Moshe, Shalokamu Beseser, Vish Hefresh Ben Lifnei, Obein Mipnei. It doesn't say they stood up, Mipnei Moshe. Mipnei Moshe would mean they stood up because of Moshe. They were upset, they were rebelling, they were angry, they were resentful, they were bitter. They were challenging. That's not what it says. Notes the Ibn Ezra. It says Lifnei. What does Lifnei mean? In front of. And says the Ibn Ezra, this was an open rebellion. They didn't meet privately in his office. Why? Why? Because when your agenda is a successful outcome, then you meet privately. You don't go right to the press. You have a grievance with someone, you go meet with them. You share it with them. You talk it out. You put it on the table privately. In fact, the more public something becomes, the less likely you can work it out. People have to dig in their heels. And now, people form on both sides, armies, and rumors spread, and egos get involved. 
When you go meet and it's private, the fewer people who know, the greater the likelihood you can mediate. Says the Ibn Ezra, the goal wasn't to mediate. The goal wasn't a private meeting to succeed in some agenda or grievance. It was to make a public statement. Says the Ibn Ezra, Lifnei Moshe, Vayakumu, they took out billboards. They put posts online. They wrote blogs. They weren't interested in meeting with Moshe and resolving it privately. They were interested in fermenting a public rebellion. And that's the Balaturim. Vayakumu, they stood up. Begamatria, Lachlok. What was their goal? What was their agenda? Machlokas. Sometimes that's the whole agenda is machlokas. What are you arguing about? Doesn't even matter. We're arguing. I don't like you. Why? Doesn't matter. Sometimes machlokas, I would say actually very often, in families, I've given drushes about this, there are families that are fighting years later and no one can remember why they're in a fight. There are siblings who haven't spoken in decades and no one can remember what the original fight was about, why they're not talking. Is there a greater tragedy than that? To a certain degree, is there anything more pathetic than that? But when people are so committed to the machlokas, they're wrong and I'm right. What are they wrong and you're right about? I don't even know. All I know is I'm right and they're wrong. About what? What's the machlokas? I can't remember. All I remember is I'm right and they're wrong. That's absurd. It's self-destructive. It's, it's ridiculous. So that's Vayakumu, says the Balaturim, Vayakumu in Gematria is lachlok. Why they stand up? It doesn't matter. Lachlok, machlokas. Because they're wrong and I'm right. That's why they stood up. That was the agenda. Okay, there's a lot more to say, but we're going to stop here. Wish everyone a wonderful shower.